what we're doing from the user point of view is we're enabling them to receive timely and relevant offers and access to the things they need for the activities in which they are engaged. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have Dave DuPont, who's the CEO of TeamSnap, the number one sports team management app that makes communication and organization a breeze. Dave, how's it going? It's going great. It's been a fantastic day. Hope it is for you too, Eric. Yeah, it's it's wonderful here. Now that you're here, you know everything's great. So why don't you <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and and what you do? Sure. So. Who am I? So I'm the CEO of TeamSnap. TeamSnap is the world-leading tool for teams and groups and sports organizations to communicate and manage their activities. As far as me, I I like to describe myself as a grizzled technology veteran. I started my career in large companies, specifically Schlumberger in the oil fields actually in North and West Africa for a few years. HP for about a dozen years, and subsequently a series of entrepreneurial ventures, starting in the computer peripherals arena and gradually making my way to pure software, which is what TeamSnap is. Got it. And so, what what is TeamSnap? I guess you can you can explain it better than I can. And kind of how does it help people? Yeah. So I'm going to explain what we actually do for people, and then I'll explain what it is we provide to do that. So ultimately, our mission in life is just to make life easy for people on teams. And the way we do that is we specifically focus on helping them communicate and coordinate activities. And communication means letting everybody know where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there, what they're supposed to bring and all that, which turns out to be very valuable, but also communicating the game experience through chat, through um, a high level summary, interactive, what's going on in a game or competitive event, and also through photos and Zoom video. So that's what we do at the team level. We also provide a suite of services uh, for larger organizations that complements those team participant-based benefits. So that's that's what people are using us for. How do we do that? We do it with um, a, an integrated set of software services that comprise applications, services for organizations, and native mobile apps, as well as notification systems using text messages, push notifications, and emails. So think about us as a tool that people use to communicate and coordinate, and the tool comprises software that basically connects with them the way they want to be connected, on the web, on their smartphones, through native mobile apps. If they're old school and like email, they can do that. Text messages, push notifications, all those. Okay. 
Great. So what would be like an example of this? Maybe like a per, perhaps a case study where people can kind of visualize this a little more. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Eric. So a typical thing that is wildly easier with us that is difficult if an organization isn't using us is uh, let's imagine that today it snowed in Boulder. And let's imagine that there was some sporting practice that had to be canceled to tomorrow or had to be rescheduled for even a half hour later. In the past, when that occurred, or if someone's not using our tool, what one has to do is notify everybody somehow. Call them up, send an email, email message that a lot of people don't get. Phone trees were invented for this kind of thing. So that's, that's the particular problem that we solve. In our case with TeamSnap, all you have to do as the person who's organizing the event is change it on your calendar, and then everyone is automatically notified via their web application. They can look on the web and see the change schedule if they wish. They get a push notification if that's what they want that tells them the game or practice has been rescheduled. They get a text message. They get an email notification. If they go to the native mobile app, it's automatically updated. So you can see that every way that someone would use to find out about when something is supposed to happen, and this is just one of the things we do, is automatically corrected and proactively announced when a simple change is made. So literally, it takes 15 seconds to make a change on the schedule. And this is a really big deal if you're talking about youth teams. As a coach put it to me years ago, in the past, if he changed the schedule and he had a, a team of eight-year-old girls, he would literally have to call every parent to make sure they got the email and that they're and that you know he that the kid was being dropped off at the right place at the right time. And he and he said not only did he have to make all those phone calls, but in the course of making the phone calls, every conversation was never a did you get the email? Do you know the practices this time or whatever? It always ended up being a longer conversation because the parent would say, Why isn't little Susie playing more? or what can she do to get better or whatever. So he said it literally would take him a couple of hours to make a simple schedule change. Got it. Okay. So actually, this I mean, this could apply to sports teams for sure, but just any kind of collaborative effort, this is something that fits in, right? Exactly. And that's why at this point, about 5% of our 20 million users are in non-sports activities. Wow. Like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, alumni groups, motorcycle gangs, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> motorcycle gangs. Interesting. So, yeah. so you, you, can, you can see all their conversations. You can see everything, right? You have all the data. Yeah, we have lots of data about the organizations. True. <laughs> That's funny. I, that, that, I can go into a whole other podcast on that, but I'm going to leave it alone. Okay, so 20 million users. I mean, that's fantastic, right? I want to go into that in a second, but what are some other numbers you can share around the business? Yeah, so let's see. 20 million users. We have something like a million and a half at this point. Uh, games and, uh, excuse me, teams and small groups using us. We've branched out over time, I mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, into providing services for larger organizations that, that complement our team-based solutions. So teams and groups generally don't exist alone in the universe. They generally belong to a larger organization. In the case of teams, it might be a club or a league. We actually provide communication and coordination and other administrative capabilities for the club of the league as well. And at this point, we're approaching 5,000 of those larger organizations that use TeamSnap. Great, okay. So we're growing, let's see, we're growing at this point pretty close to 100% year over year. We've been doing that for 
more or less since our, uh, our founding eight years ago. What else can I tell you? We're in 177 countries. About 40% of our business is outside the United States. We have a particularly strong position in Canada, but we, we are everywhere. At this point, our native mobile app, the iOS app, is localized in uh, French and Spanish as well as English. We're, we moved into, and I, I don't release exact figures on these things, but we're well into double digits in revenue. We're, we're into three digits in terms of the overall complement of people working for Team Snap. We've raised a total of $47.3 million and uh, don't expect to have to raise money again. That's great. That's great. So, you know, on the, on the $47 million that you guys have raised, what are you guys doing with that money right now? How are you using it? So it turns out that the, um, the faster growing parts of our business are the larger organizations and tournament management as well, which is a whole separate thing, and also commerce and advertising. So using TeamSnap as a vehicle to reach our users with the products and services they need. So those are the fast-growing parts of our business. All of it's growing fast by most people's standards, but those are growing even faster. So we've invested, especially this year, significantly in those areas from a product perspective, from a sales and marketing perspective, and also to a limited extent in terms of acquisitions. So we made a couple of acquisitions um, specifically in the um, tournament and uh, club arena. Great. That's smart. So how do you guys make money right now? We make money through three primary streams. First of all, at the team and the larger organization level, we charge uh, subscription rates. Second, to a significant extent, and, and this is growing rapidly, we are collecting money for organizations. So we take a small fee associated with the money that we collect for, say, a club, a league, or a tournament. And then lastly, brands and product and service providers pay us to access our user base, so advertising and commerce. And the reason they do so is because we have lots of detail. This goes back to your question about the information we have about our users. We have lots of information that allows us to provide, from the advertiser or the product provider's point of view, we're providing targeting. But to make a long story short, what we're doing from the user point of view is we're enabling them to receive timely and relevant offers and access to the things they need for the activities in which they are engaged. Right. So like biker gang, you know, maybe some bats or some chains and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then soccer team, you know, soccer balls, jerseys and things like that, right? Exactly. I was thinking more of the latter case. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. So 20 million users. I mean, you know, I want to, I guess I have two questions around that. So how did you go about acquiring, let's just say your first thousand customers? Completely viral. So we, we created a solution for ourselves, really recognizing that uh, we were on teams and had kids on teams and saw uh, a problem. So we created a, a solution that solved a bit of the problem and started testing ourselves, introduced it to our friends and such. And we got to, I'd say, even the first million or so users without any marketing whatsoever. And so you're saying most of it was word of mouth and you had certain kind of mechanisms built into the product? Yes, especially word of mouth. And also, and this is kind of interesting, we have some very early loyal and valuable customers in certain places. 
that I've, I've you know, discovered and talked to over the years. And one thing that came up in certain places that, that are reasonably technologically sophisticated is people would say things like, I just expected something like you to exist, so I looked for you on the web. I typed in um, schedule, sports schedule management, and you came up. So good SEO. So Yeah, so good SEO, basically, exactly. Got it. Okay. Was there anything else? I mean, you know, to get to, you know, 1 million and then 20 million, you know, usually there's that one, that one PR bump or that one campaign that you did that, you know, was the kind of uh, spark point. Was there anything like that? You know, a little bit like we had the, um, you know, the typical um, bump from, um, you know, tech pubs, for instance, they helped, you know, some people and, and in the early days, it was much easier to get a, a, attention in the early days of the company. Think back eight years ago, it was it was easier to get attention of the major tech pubs. So we benefited from that and we benefited. And I've seen this in other businesses, too, from super users. So I'll give you an example. We started the company in 2009. And by the time the fall of 2010 rolled around, we had a pretty good idea of the seasonality of our of our um, subscription business. We could predict, for instance, that soccer more or less gets rolling at the end of August and uh, baseball gets rolling sometime in the spring, et cetera. And we could predict our business based upon that. And we had experienced over the first year of our existence that things, at least from a new subscriber point of view, started to flatten out in October and then picked up again with the winter sports in January. But that particular year, we noticed a huge spike in, in October. So we're, we're pretty analytical people. So we're like, what's, what's going on here? So we dived in and we discovered that the spike was from users in Calgary. So we're like, oh, that's interesting. So we had their email addresses. So we sent an email and said, you know, and I actually remember the title of the email was Oh Canada. <laughs> so, so we said, we noticed that there are a lot more Canadian customers. What's been happening? And what, what we discovered is that a few soccer moms who had gotten to know and love us for their kids' soccer teams were actually administrators in some of the Calgary-based hockey clubs hockey associations. So they, they basically mandated TeamSnap's use in those organizations. So it was really those super users who drove significant, and this still happens to us today, drove significant growth for us. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. So it was these momfluencers and uh, you can call them that or, or super users, influencers, whatever that, that helped you guys get there. Was there anything else on the, on the journey to, you know, from 1 million to 20 million? Well, I mean, there are lots of lessons, but on the momfluencers thing, I'll just make a general comment, which is and I've, I've been involved in growing a number of businesses. And one of the things I've noticed is it pays off or let me phrase it this way. In the very beginning, it always benefits you to look for the people that the way I, I phrase it, pay more attention to you than it seems they should. Huh. Those people, if you look at almost any business, they're the guys and it's not only men, they're the people who are a major ingredient in success of any, almost any new business venture. Somebody, you know, use the term early adopter if you want. Um, it doesn't quite capture what I'm talking about, but the people who, for whatever reason, are psyched about what you're doing. And it doesn't, early adopter kind of has this more techie connotation, right. but an early adopter could be 
like I'll give you an example. Uh, we I recently was talking to a club administrator who was one of our early users, and he said, I just went to your website and liked your humor. And I knew you were the kind of guys I wanted to work with. That's a guy who, you know, he's taking a flyer to a certain extent on a very early stage company. But that guy was super loyal to us. Love it. And, and you know, and was a big, it was a big reason for our success in those large organizations over time in the region in which he resides. Got it. That's interesting. It, you know, I was talking to a, a VC yesterday and he was talking about how this app in Japan got 55 million users, but ended up just kind of blowing up because nobody was really engaging with it right but you've managed to create something really engaging and then you've you've kind of figured out these other you know different revenue streams um that to add more value right did you have this kind of set in place when you're starting this business or did you just kind of gradually figure it out anybody who says they have everything figured out about uh, out about their business uh when they start the business is uh is is not telling the truth we've certainly evolved we've not actually pivoted but we have certainly evolved our revenue streams. We've evolved the markets we're going after, evolved the nature of the organizations that we're pursuing. So starting with teams, moving up to clubs, leagues, associations. Actually, we even have some agreements now with national governing bodies. National governing bodies are entities like, uh, like Hockey Canada, for instance, or uh, Little League USA. By the way, the engagement was something that we had and we came across, we came upon it honestly. That turns out to ha- to be super valuable. Um, we didn't realize how valuable. We were just trying to develop a tool that would make people's lives easier. But in becoming more or less the fabric of a lot of these organizations, the tool they use to communicate and coordinate, what people tell me when, like, people find out, you know, potential partners. Uh, in the past, investors, they'd find out or just strangers or people I meet at a cocktail party or whatever. When they hear about what I'm doing, they'll often whip out their phone and say, look, Team Snap's on my homepage. I look at it several times a day because they're trying to figure out what's, you know, when they're supposed to be someplace. And if they're not able to attend a game, what's happening at the game. Mm. So that's turned out to be a huge advantage for us because it increases virality, of course. It makes our audience very valuable to any potential partner. And uh, we just have the benefit of a very loyal audience. Our, our typical user is interacting with TeamSnap one and a half times a day. Wow, okay. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I mean, you know, we talk a lot about customer acquisition slash marketing on this podcast, but the, the number one thing you can do is have something that's engaging that can retain people over time where else you don't really have anything, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, it. it <laughs> Marketing, and I, I'm a, I, my background is marketing, actually, is, uh, is super important, obviously. But ultimately, people don't engage with marketing. They engage with a product. So you've got to make something that's useful and it provides value for people. 100%. Speaking of keeping or you know, having engagement, I want to talk about how you know, 80 plus percent of your staff is remote. Is that still true? Yes. Okay. So what, uh, I guess, what was kind of the, the impetus for this? And you know, how, how is it working out for you guys today? So the impetus was pragmatism. The um, other founders in the company happened to be living in Portland, Oregon. Mm. And I was living in Boulder. I found these guys because I was looking for, basically I was pointed to them as a potential um, developer of technology for what I wanted to do. And over a period of time, to make a long story short, I convinced them to quit their day jobs. (laughs) But there was the issue of, okay, where are we going to put the company? It turns out that this web design firm 
was uh, a virtual firm. In other words, it comprised only four people and they'd always worked remote. They never had an office. So I said to them, well, this seems to be working out okay for you guys. I kind of like Boulder. That is when I said this, I meant the virtual working relationship. So let's, let's continue. We're going to need a headquarters somewhere, but let's see if we can make a go of this remote culture. And we have over time made that an advantage for the company. It's worked out supremely well. We, a few years ago, we brought on a new engineering leader and he was very skeptical about the whole remote work thing. And he's now a complete convert. He's actually an evangelist for how well it can work. If you do it right, you end up with a, a more loyal workforce. And uh, frankly, you can save costs compared to if you had to have all your developers in, say, San Francisco or Boulder or Manhattan. Right. So, you know, the the company I used to be at uh, in the past, I mean, I think 60 to 70 percent of us were remote. Uh, worked out really well because most of our culture was, you know, developers and designers. And I was one of the few marketers. Yeah. So, you know, I was a big proponent of that. You know, and then I came into this, ended up taking over this company. Yeah. And what I found was, OK, I, what happened was I converted the culture to remote. Right. Didn't work out for us. And then now, you know, most of the team is actually, you know, in person. And I found that to work better for, you know, a kind of a, a marketing kind of agency. Um, so I, I guess my thing is like, I love remote. Like I get a lot more work done, but you know, I hear from other people. It's like, Oh, you know, remote's great, but you know, it's not for me. Right. So what is your take on that? Well, you bring up an interesting point, which is I think to a certain extent it is function specific. It's also individual specific. Not everybody's cut out to work remote. And then lastly, if you're going to make it work, you have to pay attention to the practices you follow, the tools you use. So we take a lot of time to make sure that you need to have people that can communicate effectively and both ways. Okay, So talking, listening, and also are self-starters if you're going to be remote because there's nobody sitting over there, you know, standing over their shoulder to see what they're up to. So that's that's a, a requirement. I think some functions are naturally uh, better suited for remote work. We have a lot of software developers, to your point. So that works pretty well. We do also have remote marketers as well, but it's a little harder in my uh, experience. Marketers tend to be kind of visual people. They like to draw things on whiteboards. Yeah. There's no great whiteboard tool yet, to my chagrin. And also, we found that there is no substitute for getting people together every once in a while. So even though we're remote, we invest quite a bit of money, and we have another one coming up pretty soon. But we have company summits about every six months where everybody in the company gets together for, you know, we typically do this at an out-of-season ski resort, or this year we're doing, uh, not this year, but this coming month, we're doing it in uh, Tucson. And so that's that's kind of blending the personal experience with the remote. We encourage teams, like um, uh, sometimes a subset of our developers will get together at a conference, do some hacking, uh, do a hackathon, not hacking, hackathon, <laughs> the uh, Freudian slip. Sometimes like one of our line of business teams will get together, like our club line of business team will get together, rent, a, rent an Airbnb somewhere. So we're very flexible and pragmatic pragmatic about how we approach it, taking into account uh, different proclivities and also the fact that humans, even software developers, like like company and like to make uh, 
connections. We've also found that some of the functions just benefit from being here in Boulder. So 24% of us are here. And um, the finance guys in particular seem to like being in the same environment, so they're here. <laughs> sales, entry-level sales, benefit the people who go into that role and our experience benefit from being in a, let's call it a bullpen kind of environment. They learn from each other. Mm. So uh, we're very pragmatic about how we do this. I want to spend a, a second or two talking about practices, though, because that's yes. that's been an important aspect of of making remote work work. And I've talked about this in a variety of forums, but um, we go out of our way to equal the to level the playing field for everybody in the company. So one example is, and this this probably dates me when I say this, but we use we heavily use video conferencing. But a practice that we hit upon a couple of years ago was to, even if there were multiple people in the office on a conference call, we all jump on our own instance. So we don't have the bunch of people in a conference room phenomenon with a few people remote trying to figure out what they're saying. Right. Well, let's dive in on that because I remember reading about that a little bit. So what, was, what kind of caused that to, to you know, make that switch? Well, I hate to admit it, but um, several of my fellow uh, executives noticed that uh, if the meeting had a large number of Boulder folks and Dave was in the room, it was hard for them elsewhere to get a word in edgewise. Right. So, you know, it's just natural. You just don't notice the people on the screen as much when you're in the room with a bunch of people. And they also couldn't see who was talking sometimes and they couldn't hear everybody. So it was actually some members of the team said, you know, this isn't really ideal. So we came up with the concept of everybody has their own screen. And it seems a little weird. You know, I was like, that seems kind of weird. So we have five people in Boulder and they're all on their individual computers. And even if it's one or two elsewhere, we're going to do that. But it actually was the right thing to do. Okay, that that's good. So I, I like that. You called it. Uh, what do you, what do you call this? Oh, oh, this is the part that dates me. I called it Brady Bunch Squares. <laughs> I love it. Great. Yeah, that, where that comes from is the opening of this old '80s. I think it was actually earlier than that. Sadly, um, television show is they they showed all the characters. You know, they they would show up on the screen and each would occupy a square that was visible. Oh come on, you're not that dated. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, I am. Um, I guess I could say Hollywood Squares. That might be a little bit more. I need to come up with a more recent example of that. Brady Bunch is good to me. Anyway, so you know, as we work towards wrapping up here, I, I do want to back up a second because I, I do like I do love templates a lot, right? So when you talk about the summit, right? Uh, you know, we were talking about team building things like that. Yeah. You know, what are the important activities you have during a summit? What's what's like a must have? Well, if it's me, a must-have is good meals and desserts. Uh, that's <laughs> part of it. But but there, you know, a couple of couple of ingredients. So the summit is is first of all, we want we want to strengthen relationships. So let's start at the top. We want to strengthen relationships amongst people. We want to uh, get everyone aligned, and that means having everyone understand what we're trying to accomplish that year and have the opportunity to. Um, to ask questions with the goal of understanding further and getting more aligned with what we're trying to accomplish, registering concerns, having those addressed, maybe in some cases refining the plans. So that's that's the second piece, relationships, alignment. And then we typically, I said I would name a couple, I'll name two more things. We want to um, also 
maybe dive into a topic or two. And lastly, have a lot of fun along the way, which goes back to the first point, building relationships. What's like an example of a topic you dive into? A uh, topic we, we dive into is um, oh, something like, uh, what does is, what is a video highlight solution need to look like? So it's, you know, brainstorming and, and uh, you know, there'll be designers and everything. So that's a, that's a, you know, fleshing that out is something that we would dive into. And typically we do it in a little bit smaller groups. And, and I mean, in the early days, it was, you know, five people, eight people, a dozen, and we would be refining the roadmap, stuff like that. We don't use this form for that anymore, although there may be some roadmap refining going on. But yeah, we, we dive into functional or product or other issues. What we've hit upon more recently is we tend to have tracks. So there may be a track about dealing with a, um, a particular kind of support issue. There may be a track about uh, moving into a new market. There may be a track around a particular product feature. I just gave the example of video highlights mm. um, and so forth. And you know, like a conference, we'll set it up such that you can, so the people that are interested in those topics can attend them. Oh, that's cool. So you, you have like different like breakout sessions where there's like a speaker going in. Okay, got it. That's cool. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then we come back together for typically I kick things off talking about uh, what our what our plan is for the year. We always we always conclude the session with what can we do better next time we do this. So there are a couple of uh, uh, sort of standard things that we've evolved over time. In between, there's usually usually some you know some sort of outside fun thing that we do. One one year it was uh, midnight uh, disc golf literally at midnight <laughs> at a, at a, if you know where Devil's Thumb Ranch is near Grant, near Granby, Colorado, up in the mountains. Uh, we've done things like, you know, organized by teams and have uh, adventure kind of challenges, uh, climbing over walls and doing, doing fun things, shooting arrows. We had one of the summits at a dude ranch. So everything was associated with things you do at dude ranches, throwing hatchets and, <laughs> and starting a fire with flint and steel and, what else do we do there? Oh, lassoing, you know, the competitions around that kind of stuff. We have a lot of fun at these. That's awesome. You know, I, I could, that this could be a totally, this could be another podcast episode in itself, but I'm in the interest of time. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to move on here. So, you know, one thing that really strikes me as you, you know, you've been through the fire a couple of times with different companies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you strike me as a really kind of calm and collected guy. I mean, were you always like this? I'm not sure my wife would say I'm always calm and collected, <laughs> but I guess I would say one thing, which is, yeah, I've been through been through the battles. So one one advantage of that is you have perspective. So you you know very well, Eric, that in business in general and especially a startup is not an uninterrupted rise to the right. Yep. Okay. It's not always up and to the right. Everything is going well every single day. Uh, even if you're doing well overall, like us, there are peaks and valleys. And having been through the peaks and valleys. And when you're in the bottom of the valley, knowing that, yeah, tomorrow's going to be better and we'll get out of this valley. And also knowing when you're at the peak, this is fine, but it's not going to last long. Right. (laughs) So that perspective is extremely helpful and it allows you to, to keep an even keel as long as things overall are moving in the right direction. Yeah, I love that. Final question from my side, and yeah, I, I think it's all about you know patience at the end of the day, and, and being able to take the hits, which is why I recommend everyone play poker. Just don't lose a lot of money. Yeah. But anyway, what's the what's one must read book you recommend to everyone? One must read book I recommend to everyone. 
Well, it's going to be colored by you know the mem- memory fades, right? Yeah. I, I really liked um, the startup of you. I think that's good. That's good for everybody, not just people in the entrepreneurial world, because you know, today's world, unlike you know, I'm old enough to have have graduated from college in a world where I found a job, right? There were companies that recruited on my campus, and I think for a good portion of the world now, and I had the expectation I'd work for the company that hired me for a long time. That world is gone. You've got to take the responsibility for your own career. In the case of people like me that have started your own companies, you know, you gotta you gotta step up yourself. So I think um, I think that book does that. Lean Startup, I'm a huge fan of. If I get to name another book, yep. Yeah. What else? Um, just this is fresh in my mind, and it kind of goes into the peaks and valleys thing, but but I. I'm not a huge reader of biographies, but I did like um, Shoe Dog, which is uh, about Phil Knight. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one as well. My general view of uh, literature, business literature in, in general, is there are snippets to be gained from all kinds of sources. That pertains to people as well. So I'm, I'm an avid reader. It's hard for me to pick out one that's my favorite. Some of the things that, uh, and, and the same is true of people I've interacted with. I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of good people, and frankly, some bad people too. gives you gives you an understanding of the good ones. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think one should always be searching for, you know, new positive uh, things to learn. Great, awesome. So, Dave, this has been fantastic. We'll drop everything you mentioned in the show notes. But what's the best way for people to find you online? Best way to for people to find me online is uh, well if they want to reach me, email works, which is Dave at teamsnap.com. My Twitter handle is MD DuPont and my which frankly I read much less than email. And uh, our website is www.teamsnap.com. Awesome. Dave, thanks so much for doing this. Okay, Eric. Thanks very much for your time. Enjoyed it. Great questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.